0: This is Farm to Tabor, part two of a three-parter with Michelle Allison, registered dietitian and completely unofficial food therapist. In this section, we talk woke farming, fake science, and food Nazis. Like actual Nazis, fascism and its weird food and fitness preoccupations, in no particular order. It's fascinating because when you go out and you work in agriculture, I've worked with hundreds of farms with all these different crops in different areas of the U.S. And what I find is that all else being equal, size, crop, region, all else being equal, the farmers who are woker are more successful. Like they interact with their workers as people who need training and tools to function. So they give them that. Instead of just as farm equipment who just kind of exist to do things for you. And so the worker farmers are a lot more like their farms are more together and functional and financially stable. Um, I'm not sure how much of that is cause and effect. I'm sure there's some feedback, but, you know, they're actually able to kind of take an, a clear eyed look at what's happening, respond appropriately. And as a result, they're more financially successful. So yes. again, <laughs> the, the acting like it's necessary for there to be government interventions when just being kind of aware of your surroundings and responding appropriately and running your business well actually does make a huge impact. It's really interesting for, for me to watch the farm lobby kind of go like, oh, but we need government help.
1: Right. It almost sounds like they're asking to have the symbolic place of farming subsidized rather than the actual practice of responding well enough to do well.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, the things we're doing in our current farm situation, like economically, they're not working out for farmers. I'm not saying we don't need to change anything, Um, but I am saying, you know, farmers themselves played a lot of the roles in why it is the way it is today. And if we try and fix that without acknowledging how farm culture has built the system that we have now, and farm culture is going to keep being farm culture, regardless of our economic interventions. Maybe we should be looking at farm culture as a part of that system and as a driver, not just as a passive thing that people received, because this is how we treat farmers.
1: Right. Yeah. Maybe maybe that culture could stand a second look and some yeah. changes. Yeah.
0: So that, that's where the sustainable ag movement really loses me. It's, it's all about we need to save family farmers. And it's not like taking a critical look at everything that's causing them to have problems. So wow.
1: Yeah. How do you feel like there's (laughs) sustainability? How how does that link up in your eyes to like fitness culture and wellness culture?
0: Oh, man. Well, I mean, there's there's kind of this blood and soil, you know. Uh, (laughs) So there's this fascist motto, right? Blood and soil. Um, So it seems like it might be farm related, right? Um, So fascism, fascism is it's not a political movement. It's a it's an aesthetic movement. Because if you sit down and ask them, like, okay, so what's fascist tax policy look like? <laughs> no one thinks about that. It's completely right. an aesthetic movement about who's allowed to be a citizen in the country. It's not about how we're going to actually run the country.
1: Right. Who's a full human being? And, and
0: yeah. 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 Um, and land ownership has a huge amount to do with that. Um, I mean, the the American project, right, is like, let's depopulate this continent and then kidnap a bunch of people from this other continent. And we're going to own the land. And land ownership is the one part of agriculture where you can do nothing and just collect rent checks. So (laughs) that's had a big place of primacy in, you know, our agricultural political economy, I guess. Um, If you'll notice, the sustainable black movement is just as bad at this. um, Every time there's a farm or food problem, the policy proposals almost always end with, therefore, we need to give farmers money. Mm-hmm. except when they say farmers, the policy actually always goes to whoever owns the land. Yeah. So really it means we need to give landowners money. That's <laughs> always been the hustle. You'll never understand agriculture. If you think it's about making food, it is a real estate hustle.
1: Right. It's, it's funneling wealth to people who already have wealth.
0: Yeah. yeah, exactly. And the people who own land are pretty much white because of the way our political economy has worked. Um, you know, in the, The South is most famous for this, Um, but the Pacific Northwest and Midwest also had like really draconian uh, black exclusion laws. Like, those places are not white by accident. That was deliberate. My grandpa was actually human trafficked out to California because they wanted farm laborers who were white, because they didn't want any black or Asian people there. So. Wow,
1: God. It's so messed
0: up. It's so messed up. Anyway, I've been talking for a while now. So, um,
1: (laughs) fascism and food. This is exactly what I wanted to happen. I was like, maybe I can just get Sarah to talk to me about something.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's like, welcome to the monologue show. Anyway, so tell us a little bit about fitness culture and the food side of fascism.
1: Okay, gosh, well, there's there's like so much here, and I feel like I can't I can't do it all justice, really. But I can say from from my own personal experience, the way that I started to notice these things might be related was kind of like through internet culture where as you know like there are sort of like hotbeds of percolating fascism uh, the
0: cesspool of our soul yeah
1: <laughs> and i have been on the internet a long time like a really really long time and so i saw some of these sort of like little percolating pots of fascism forming in earlier stages you know and on different sort of platforms um And a lot of them were always, like, really concerned with weightlifting Mm -hmm. and, like, fitness and, like, fatness, definitely, and, like, fat people were less than people at the same time that they were espousing, like, um, either, you know, quote-unquote ironic uh, Nazism or sort (laughs) of, like, overtly fascist uh, ideology. So, um, and then over time, the ironic part of it was dropped. Of course, it was never... uh, truly ironic to begin with no. uh, that was that was just an easy uh, conduit through which to get people to normalize these ideas before they fully you know took them on mm-hmm. uh, as, a, as a personal brand so um, I, I noticed this you know relatively early on, that these sort of like weird little pockets of fascism on the internet were always really concerned with weightlifting and body shaping. And mm-hmm. they really, really hated, I mean, they hated fat. Uh, they hated feminists. They hated all women online. Of course they hated, uh, black women, especially, mm-hmm. uh, women, women of color, especially. Um, but they also really, really hated fat women, like a lot.
0: How <laughs> dare <laughs> they? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. And of course, like fat women of color is just like the ultimate, like, uh, uh trifecta of things that they really despised. Mm-hmm. Um, so I found this really strange initially, I guess, um, and then over time it became clear to me that this was really about immortality, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and and we kind of discovered this because the the language that these people would often use, like if you managed to get into a fight with some of these uh, like fitness bros Ugh. or fascists, uh, <laughs> they, would, <laughs> they would talk about how you were going to die, and they were using the language of like um, Highlander. If you, <laughs> like
0: if, oh nice.
1: Highlander yeah uh, they were often using this this language one of my like friends on Twitter and I can't, I can't remember who it was now but she said like the funniest thing like she pointed out that they were essentially using language that implied that um, you know in this land of immortal Highlanders only the weak die And, and that's there can talking.
0: only be one race
1: yeah. <laughs> it was ridiculous and it was so clearly like absurd and ridiculous that it was funny but it was scary um, right. and then you know, and then later on, these these same sort of groups with these same sort of ideas, voting the vote faced our actual American election. Uh, mm-hmm. And <laughs> right. elected, a, you know, like a white supremacist fat w- woman hating like um, Pepe f- figure, like for, for real. So um, I've watched this sort of like grow and burble over and harass people. And there was always an element of like purity with fitness purity with bodies purity with food connected to immortality connected to fascism and like dominance it was really this whole thing has been a dominance-based ideology so that's that's been terrifying to watch happen yeah
0: well it's 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 so interesting because i feel like a lot of the times they really like show more of themselves than they meant to you know this is kind of something that contrapoints if if anybody watches her mentions a lot is like they show a little bit too much of themselves and you can see exactly what they're scared of. You know, like these guys are terrified of death. They're terrified of mortality and, you know, being fallible and being alone. And you're like, that's really sad. You've got some crazy unhealthy coping mechanisms.
1: (laughs) sad in like a pathetic way but it's also terrifying because people who are people who are this terrifying um who cannot who literally just cannot face the reality of of the human condition will Mm -hmm. lash out at Mm -hmm. anybody Mm -hmm. and there's like such horrifying um like ties or parallels to be made between this and like donald trump right now like if you're cornered with the facing your own mortality, your own actual insignificance on a cosmic scale, um, and you're like a complete egomaniac who just can't deal with any of these things, <laughs> you will you will probably like destroy the world um, mm-hmm. to to basically continue denying the fact that you are just a mortal. You know, <laughs> <I think> Sheldon <laughs> Solomon likes to pull out the phrase: "You're a you're a defecating rotting." piece of meat essentially and, yeah. you know, they're no more important than like a worm or a potato people who are invested in these ideologies are the the people who cannot stand that reality and will literally blow up the world to avoid admitting it so these people become violent very quickly and the the dominance and the behaviors of dominance are an important coping mechanism to help them like continue escaping this reality
0: right yeah something i thought was really interesting is like if you look at jordan peterson and the big thing he became like really 15 minutes of fame for was the lobster thing and like hierarchy is inevitable uh, it was it was almost like reading Goodman Brown, you know, where they're like, uh, what some Puritans were like, I wandered off into the woods. I saw some people worshiping the devil. And that's just who we are. Let's worship the devil. And, you know, and there is, you know, he's selling it as philosophy, but there's no examination of like, he just says it's inevitable. We don't talk about maybe should we treat it that way? Is it desirable? Is it good? That's not in there. It's just this is your base nature. Live with it.
1: Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's amazing that people are willing to accept those like extraordinary conclusions without mm-hmm. any sort of you know backing argument or you know extraordinary evidence to go along with these claims it's it's almost as though there, there's something inherent in here that people want to believe I think it's very comforting to believe that hierarchy is inevitable if you mm-hmm. benefit from the existing hierarchy
0: mm-hmm. yeah I know it's, I don't know it's, uh, I could go off in like a three-day tangent here but uh, yeah it's just it's it's all about fear of death and not being able to come to terms with it um i guess maybe go ahead i
1: actually walked into a used bookstore like maybe two weeks ago and uh i was just kind of checking the the philosophy section for anything good and um i could overhear the owner of the bookstore having a chat with a dude who'd come in and they were clearly talking about jordan peterson without saying his name. Um, you are talking about how he was a customer of the bookstore and he lives in that neighborhood. Um, and I was just like, oh, my God, f- you guys. So I'm like, I just laughed. I am like, I've never, I can never come back to the story. Again. Oh, man. The owner is a fan and Jordan Peterson actually shops here. So,
0: um, oh, man. Yikes. <laughs> so I guess maybe we should talk about healthy coping mechanisms for fear of death. I have some ideas. I've got some goth in my soul. But, uh, <laughs> you know, like, let's talk about that.
1: Yeah, that's actually, that's a really good, it's a really good way to put it. And it's a way that, I don't know, we don't often put it this way, but so I'm thinking a little bit about like, there are, there are coping mechanisms that people engage in that the research describes them as either sort of proximal defenses or distal defenses against Mm -hmm. the, the fear of death or mortality salience. Proximal defenses are the ones that happen when you are immediately and acutely aware that. You know, mortality is a thing and it applies to you. Mm -hmm. Um, And they take the form of like people will distance themselves or try to keep themselves safe from the fear of death. And often those will take very logical seeming. Uh, forms. Like somebody might quit smoking, for example, which is like, you know, that's a straight up like self-care thing to do if you're worried about uh, developing diseases from smoking. Right. Um, it doesn't mean you're a morally better person. I just want to say this really, cl- <laughs> really plainly. It yeah. doesn't mean that you are a morally better person, but it does mean that if you're concerned about heart disease or lung cancer or whatever, um, that it, it actually seems kind of logical to uh, quit smoking.
0: Right.
1: Um, you might though try to, Make yourself feel invulnerable still, while the threat of mortality is very uh, conscious and present acutely. And you might do that by saying, like, well, my you know, my grandma smoked fifty thousand packs a day and lived until she was ninety nine years old. So that <laughs> like, a- a little bit less logical and effective but it's it's understandable it's very human that people engage in that to distance immediately for me like the coping mechanisms get super interesting when they become distal defenses which according to the theory this is when the mortality salience trigger is no longer in your focal attention or in your conscious awareness but death related thoughts are still highly accessible to your brain but sort of more unconsciously Hmm. and this is when people engage in more symbolic self-esteem building behaviors that are intended to sort of inoculate them indirectly I guess from from the fear of death and that's when it's weird like this is, <laughs> this is when all the symbolic behaviors start to like come out of the woodwork and people are you know putting jade eggs in their vaginas or whatever yes to <laughs> <laughs> symbolically make themselves seem like pure elevated you know not quite animal human beings yeah Um, I feel like a more honest way (laughs) to deal with this like it's very hard like I'm not gonna lie like death is scary. And I understand there's sort of like a a death positivity push um, by like Caitlin Doughty and and other people who write about terror management. And I think that's actually very, um, it's very hopeful and very positive. But I also don't want to be glib about the fear of death. Like, right? death is straight up terrifying. Like, we're all scared of it. There's no way to get around that. And to be skipping around being like, death is awesome. Like, no, it, I mean, it's not awesome. <laughs> if you if you have experience of people close to you dying, it's, it's not great. There's a lot of grief involved. And for yourself, there's a lot of the fear of the unknown involved and fear of pain and, you know, fear of things that happen to cause death. So I don't want to be glib about the fact that, like, death is scary. And, of course, people are going to be scared of it. Um, I think Sheldon Solomon, though, talks about there can be a sweet spot with awareness of death. <laughs> like, we can acknowledge this is a thing. We can say the words some of the time, like, I am mortal. This is part of the human condition. Everybody is subject to this, and not just certain people who we like to blame uh, on a societal level, because they're considered lower on the the tier of the hierarchy, we like to blame certain people for their mortality. People who get shot by the police, for example, mm-hmm. people who we think eat in ways that are impure, or people who use their bodies in ways that we think are wrong and bad. Um, we blame people for for actually being subject to the human condition that we're literally all subject to. So, <laughs> being more honest about the fact that death comes to us all, we're all vulnerable and we're all scared is like. starting point right and then and then I guess the 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 second step would be to ask yourself how does it actually make sense for me to live my life given that this thing is present and I am understandably scared of it how can I make my life make sense for me right Um, and if you're honest with yourself about engaging in symbolic behaviors like I want to do this thing because it has a great meaning for me, or I, even just I like the aesthetics of it. Like, I want to, I don't know, wear black lipstick and, like, the, you know, the maiden of death or whatever. Like, I think that's that's totally cool to do. What worries me about diet culture is that people do this while being in very bad faith about what <laughs> about what they're doing and lying to themselves about what they're doing. They use the language of science to cloak their symbolic behaviors mm-hmm. in like a unquestionable authority kind of thing, right? Yeah. And it's nonsense. We don't actually know as much about nutrition as we would need to, to render people literally Im- immortal. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And yet people act as though we do. <laughs> yeah. And they lie about what, this, what the evidence says about how science works um, in order to uh, enact those behaviors and have them go unquestioned. Um, I think engaging in symbolic behaviors and knowing that you're doing that and that it's not literally going to prolong your life, but that it it, it makes life sweeter. Mm-hmm. It makes life seem more significant to you, or even if it does give you a bit of that zing of like attachment to a larger cosmos in which you can start to feel significant. I think that's actually very important for humans and our, our culture has erased a lot of that <laughs> by this yeah. intense push toward rationalizing everything, yeah. which I'm not totally for, but I am against the abuse of science as a way of trying to render your symbolic behaviors um, into literal ones when they're when they're not. Yeah. So, anyway, that's my big word vomit about what I think people should
0: do. Yeah. No, as a scientist, it's kind of tragic to watch the way that, like, quote unquote, science has really been abused to just justify whatever people already wanted to do. I think scientific racism is a fantastic example. Yes. And, um, It's interesting because a lot of the folks doing that weren't what we would call scientists today. Uh, There was no real data behind what they were doing. Um, Scientific method was not really a part of it. They are just like, it was just, just so stories. Um, But because it kind of had that veneer of like, I'm a scientist because I said so. Uh, <laughs> people who,
1: probably because I was a white man who had, who was invested with authority culturally.
0: Yeah. Well, and people who needed that justification, you know, were like, sounds legit. There was actually a really great history panel. I was at, at the, um, Southern History Association, uh, about a month ago, um, about how Georgia had started off as a small farmer colony. Like we're going to take all these poor white people from England. We're going to get rid of all the natives because they got to go because colonization, um, so it was starting out as a genocidal project. It was project. It was a little doomed from the outset. Um, but the idea was, we're going to put this penal colony of white people, and we're going to train them to farm, and they're going to become virtuous because they're farming, <laughs> and, and they're going to act as a buffer because there are all these pirates coming up the coast, and we want them to stop and pillage these poor farmers before they get to Charleston, which is the money's butt. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was going to be a reform colony, right? Um, but then, you know, some higher end white folks found out that you could grow cotton there. And, uh, if you're surrounded by small farmers who have their own land, they don't want to come work on yours. They already got their own thing going on. So, and also your estate can only grow so large. So you have to get rid of them.
1: Um,
0: and you have to import a bunch of workers that, you know, thanks to the way our laws are structured, you can force to do things. Um, Mm -hmm. they can't just run off to their own land. Um, so that was, um. I don't know when that was. That was either late 16 or early, you know, maybe in mid 1700s. Um, I'm not a historian. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But what wound up happening, um, they had to have a justification for why they were replacing small white farms with big slave estates, right? They had to have some kind of justification that sounded legit. So, they got all these guys together and the planners, you know, the, the prospective slave owners who want to grow their estates are writing all these reports and commissioning reports um, back to the government in England about why, oh, it's too hot. White people can't work here. We're just going to have to import some people. It's just not possible. Oh,
1: my goodness.
0: Yeah. But there's a giant colony of German immigrants just across the river up in South Carolina who's doing just fine. <laughs> you know, just a just a bunch of German immigrants. They're farming just fine. Um, so there's, there's all this these facts out there completely counter to the propaganda that these prospective plantation owners are putting out. Um, but they really just needed, they needed talking points. And so they did whatever they felt like they needed to do to get talking points and making fake science was part of it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Fake science is a huge part of a cover for, <laughs> for all kinds of really disgusting uh, political maneuvers. Yeah.
0: Uh,
1: and also for, you know, sort of like horrifying symbolic meanings that we attach to things that end up having devastating impacts on people's lives
0: you're listening to farm to tabor part two in a three-parter with michelle allison registered dietitian and food culture observer thanks for listening catch you on the next segment